Welcome to this week's episode of Strange Pathways. I am your host, Scott Mort. I'm having an okay week. I hope you're having a great week. Cold has hit here in Pennsylvania. It is 15 degrees outside right now. I am sick. I am stuffy. I have a cough that will not go away. And every joint in my body is aching. Such is the life of someone who's 50 and in cold weather. I cannot wait to move to a warmer climate. If you are a fan of what you're seeing up on the YouTube screen right now, that glorious picture of three men in black in front of a UFO, you can get that image on all sorts of merchandise, a hat, t-shirts, stickers, mugs, what have you. Just follow the link down below to our Redbubble store. It is the Sparrow Manor Podcast Network store. Uh, we have a small family of podcasts under this wing, and uh, we all share a store. If you like the design and want to support us, please do so. Purchase yourself a shirt, cup, what have you. On to this week's tales. Our first tale is going to take us to Christmas 2010, the Faro Lake area of New York. Now, this tale comes to us from my uh, my great love of websites, the the uh, phantomsandmonsters.com. Amazing website. One of the few websites I go to every single day. Now, this story was sent in by D.D., D.D. has a cousin. He is a conservationist and an advocate for nature conservation. And this cousin recently saw something. It, it pains him because he wants to talk about it, but he feels that if this was made a uh, a more public knowledge, the, the area would be disclosed to the exact area that Bigfoot hunters would decimate wildlife and, and the forests. I, I've known some very, very conservancy-minded Bigfoot hunters. I've known some real jerks. Um, you know, I, I always, whenever I'm out there, I'm, and it's been quite a while, but whenever I'm out there, I always try to follow campground rules. You leave the place better than what you found it. Uh, you pick up the trash. You carry it out with you. And sadly, we live in that society where we find trash anywhere and everywhere. But while Dee Dee's cousin was hiking and camping in a remote forest in Essex County, the this cousin comes across a Sasquatch ritual burial. Now, Dee Dee's cousin is making his way back to camp, and he hears this muffled grunting 
coming to coming to him from the right hand side he he sees this this thicket of sugar maple trees just really thick Didi's cousin crouches down behind a large fallen tree kind of peeks out around and he sees three large bigfoot they're all standing around a large tree stump one of them a female absolutely head and shoulders above her companions she's around eight foot tall the others are around five or six feet and all three of them they're kind of swaying back and forth and grunting and they do this for 10 minutes and then they stop and they start to run in the opposite direction now Didi's cousin is fearful that that somehow these three Bigfoot noticed him it's getting dark and Didi's cousin decides he's going to return to his camp and come back to this spot the next day the next day comes and he starts to very carefully make his way back to that site he gets to that clearing where he saw the three Sasquatch and he notices a four foot high hollow sugar maple stump four gray squirrel tails are attached to the top edge and suspended outside the stump it's it's a kind of decoration he's his nose is just filled with this stench the stench of very strong urine Didi's cousin looks into the stump it's empty but there's some dark fur a few blood stains a large piece of old deer hide Didi's cousin thinks that these Bigfoot may have buried a small child or infant in the stump and they've come back to move it after noticing him or that that maybe a scavenger took it at night. But this could be the answer. Right? Why have we never found a body? Because these creatures practice ritual burial. And I mean, it kind of makes sense in a weird way. You don't want any scavengers that can take you down finding out you taste good I, I I honestly believe that's why humans started burying their kind uh, uh, animals fascinate me I once had a pet well two pet gerbils they had babies I was assured they were both female somebody was wrong because they had babies one of the babies ended up disappearing where did it go and we had found after we cleaned the cage looking for said baby that this baby had died and these gerbils had buried it in the deepest part of their cage just like we do I, I recently saw a video where a male emu was taking care of the, the egg that he and his mate had and on this farm, the emu had a, was given a pet teddy bear. 
and he loved this little pet teddy bear. And because this bear comforted this emu, he buried it in the hay with the egg because he knew this was going to comfort his child. Or at least he felt that way. So there you have two examples, a gerbil, an emu. I remember another time, another time where I was delivering newspapers. It was my first job out of college. I was delivering newspapers real late at night. And I was on, and you can look this up. There's a, it's Pig's Ear Road in Grantsville, Maryland. I was delivering papers along that route. It was dark out. And I almost hit a deer. And this deer would not move from in front of my car. It looked at me. It looked up the road. It looked at me. And then it was so sad. It just looked like it gave up and moved out of my way. And what did I find a hundred feet up the road? Uh, a, a tiny little fawn that had been hit by a car. This deer was in mourning and it was looking to me for help. I didn't know. And what could I have done? But these supposedly emotionless creatures, they seem to have death rituals and birth rituals. So why should Sasquatch be any different? In 1950, John Stewart began collecting UFO clippings from around the world. He became obsessed with the topic and read anything he could get his hands on about it. In 1952, John Stewart got a knock at his door. He goes to check. No one there. Now, he just brushes this off as a prank played by some kids, and perhaps it was, but not long after, Stewart is in bed reading late one night, and his telephone rings. He answers it, and the voice on the other end says, Stop interfering in affairs that don't concern you. You have been warned. Once again, this this isn't enough to spook Stewart. He joins a UFO research group based out of Hamilton, New Zealand in 1953, the Flying Saucer Investigation Society. Stewart, though, he doesn't really fit in. After a few months, he has a falling out with some fellow members, and he forms his own organization, the Flying Saucer Investigators. Now, joining Stewart was an attractive young lady by the name of Doreen Wilkinson. These are the only two members of the FSI, the Flying Saucer Investigators. Whenever I was first reading this story, I began to think that maybe Wilkinson had a thing for Stuart. Maybe Stuart had a thing for Wilkinson. But no, 
No. Stewart at the time was married, and he did go out of his way in the book UFO Warning to dispel the notion that Wilkinson and Stewart's relationship was anything more than business. At one point in their relationship, though, Wilkinson begins to get flirty. Overtly flirty. There's... It's it's awkward. And it's completely out of character for her. Stuart begins to, to suspect something. Something is oddly going on with Wilkinson. Now, during one of their weekly UFO research sessions... Wilkinson begins craving a cigarette so badly that she goes out to a nearby market to pick up a pack of cigarettes. When Wilkinson returns, the front door flies open. Doreen rushes towards Stuart. Not in passion, not in love, but with fear. Doreen says... There's something out there. Stuart hurries outside. He stops on the top step and is hit with a foul, foul odor. It was like burnt plastic and sulfur. Stuart stands there for just a moment, walks down to the gate, doesn't hear anything, doesn't see anything. Just that stench. Giving up, Stuart returns to the door. And he hears something behind him. He spins around, shines his flashlight, nothing there. Stuart walks on. The sounds follow. He stops. The sound stops. It keeps going. There was a, it was a, it was a shuffling, a scraping sound. He hears it go past him and something, something brushes against his shoulder. And then the creature manifests. Its head is large and bulbous. There's no neck. A huge, ungainly body supported on stupidly short legs, webbed feet, thin arms like stalks of bamboo. There are no hands, just long fingers jutting from the arms like stalks. The eyes are about four inches across and they're red. Two holes to breathe through. No nose, just those two holes. And the mouth was a straight slash across its face. This entire creature is lime green in color, but it's possible to see red veins running through its form. And without going into too much detail, it's most definitely a male creature. The creature reaches out, not for Stuart, but for Doreen. But then it suddenly pulls back, disappears. On December 1954, 1.30 a.m., Doreen Wilkinson is attacked by three invisible entities in her home. Around the same time, John Stewart is sitting at his desk 
and a bizarre entity appears before him. It's about four or five feet from him. It's facing him. It is humanoid, but from the waist up, it's a man. And from the waist down, it's a woman. Once again, that putrid, stinking smell. It is emanating from it. Its flesh hangs in folds and it's grayish in color. Its mouth is dribbling. Its lips are moving, but there are no sounds coming from it. In his head, Stuart hears the message, Your friend knew too much and she had to be silenced. This creature then becomes blurry and it materializes again. Stuart collapses in horror whenever he realizes that the male and female areas of the body had changed places. Once more, he is warned. Study this no more. The creature dissolves and disappears. That was the night that John Stewart and Doreen Wilkinson abandoned ufology. Last tale is going to take us back to January 31st, 1978, Montvale, New Jersey. Three boys, Eddie Hargrove and his brother Michael, and their friend John Cummings, are playing on the ice-covered field of Montvale Memorial Elementary School. They're boot skating, which is essentially ice skating without the ice skates. They're stunned as they watch a flying object approach and hover overhead. Now, this object stayed stationary for five minutes, so the boys got a real good look at it. This vehicle, if that's what it was, was square with rounded corners and had a dome on the top. Uh, It had a yellow light at each corner and a light underneath. And this light cast a red beam on the ground in front of them. Eddie, Mike, John, they, they became frightened as the object moved away. And they ran to the dugout of the school's baseball diamond. But by the time they got there, the object had disappeared. They're still shook up. They haven't really They haven't really talked about what's happened yet, but it's at this point that they see a man in a yellow jogging suit across the road from the field. Now, Mike, he's thinking to himself, oh, this is, this is their neighbor. Their neighbor went jogging often in the weekend. And Mike yells over to him, hey, Mr. Johnson, did you see that UFO? The man turned towards the boys and they were stunned. It's not Mr. Johnson. 
the the head on this entity was oddly shaped. There was a crease down the forehead, and he looked more like some sort of bird of prey, like an eagle or a hawk, than a human. Ten other creatures, all in yellow jogging suits, soon joined him. Each one was bald, had large, dark, square places where the eyes should be, and their skin was light yellow. They walked stiffly, like Nazi soldiers do, according to John. Uh, The direct quote is, Have you heard of Hitler's army? You know how they walk kind of stiff with their arms straight? Well, that's how they looked. The joggers weren't the only strange thing that the boy saw after the UFO. All three noticed the surroundings had grown eerily silent. And here we go. This is, this is something that's happened in every tale today. The boys smelled the odor of burning sulfur. The boys, whether it be fear, whether it be fur- courage, they, they leave their dugout to get a better look at the creatures. Now, some of these creatures are walking back and forth. Others left and were walking down a nearby road. The boys noticed uh, another figure, though. This one looked female. The woman was wearing a short dress, no facial features. Eddie said she just had skin on her face. She walked down the road to a low fence, sits down, and then points at the three boys and then raises her arm skyward. All three of the boys look up and they see the object again. It's flying towards them. The woman stands up and begins to walk away. A police car drove toward her, but as this police car got closer, she vanished. The police car passes. The boys see her reappear and continue walking as if nothing happened. Parts of her, the three boys reported later, kept going away, disappearing, and coming back again. The woman reaches the rear wall of a building disappears completely and so did the creatures in the yellow suits they're freaked out the boys hurry to John's house they bang on the door John's brother Hilton looks out the window to see what was the matter he saw the boys at the door but Hilton looks up and sees a spinning object in the sky Yellow and red lights, exactly where the other three boys had seen them. Hilton let his brother and his friends in. They talk a little bit, and they kind of decide, we got to call the cops. No other UFO reports had been made that night. This case got the attention of three investigators, Ted Blocker, Patrick Huey, and the famous Bud Hopkins. So, these three, they called the boys' parents, they arranged to investigate the encounter on February 5th, just five days after the sighting. They arrived in Montvale. 
They inspected the playing field. They interviewed each boy privately. They tried to trick each of the boys into admitting they hadn't really seen a UFO. They questioned them about Star Trek, Star Wars, Close Encounters. But the boys stuck to their story. And Bud Hopkins wrote in his report, it became clear to all three of us by the end of the day, the boys were not perpetrating a hoax. So could they have been mistaken? Well, the Montvale Police Department reported that they had only seen two people jogging together in Montvale, never after dark. The uh, the three investigators did discover that the workers near the school, the Department of Public Works, they wore yellow uniforms in bad weather, but all those workers had gone home by 4.30 p.m. on the day in question, too early for the boys to see them. And on top of that, there are only six people who work there. Here's the real fact of the matter. Twelve-year-old boys don't call the police unless they're really upset about something. They, they must have seen something real that night. For them to call the cops... Just to make a joke? Really, really doubtful. Thank you for joining us once again here on Strange Pathways. If you are having mental health trouble dealing with a paranormal incident, please reach out to the Opus Network, www.opusnetwork.org. Remember, you can get our MIB Encounter t-shirt. Link is in the description below. And the Spike Island Encounter t-shirt is still available as well. Our Twitter is Pathways Strange. TikTok, Strange Pathways Podcast. Our Instagram, Strange Pathways Podcast as well. Head over to Facebook. We'll have a few images dealing with what you've seen here today. And feel free to email us at strangepathwaysmail at gmail.com. Um, please, if you're over on YouTube, like, comment, subscribe, ring the notification buttons, leave a review. It really, really does help us out on Apple Podcasts, whatever, Spotify. I'm, be honest, I'm not quite certain if you can leave a review on Spotify. And if you have a few moments, Please listen to our side podcast, The Cult of SMMI. It is, I believe, some of the most important work that I've ever done in podcasting. Thank you once again for joining us here this week on Strange Pathways. Take care of yourselves and each other. (laughs) 